Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. Looking at the old in a different way, making it new once again. Author Jonathan P. Lamas captured the movement to repurpose, reuse, transform the old and once forgotten into new and beautiful forms with these words. There is a fondness, a nostalgia for eras past that takes different shapes from generation to generation, yet this sentimentality appears to be a uniquely human sentiment. But beyond the love of period costume and music, there are those among us reinventing the items that have lost relevance and purpose over time and are now breathing fresh life into them. So let's revamp our old way of thinking and discover a new mantra. In with the old and out with the new. Talking about past generations and their idiosyncrasies with curiosity and interest, as we all do. Mm-hmm. Often it's the clothes, the music, and other forms of pop culture of the time that draws our attention. Yep. My teens, Harris, have a newfound appreciation for 80s music. And mm-hmm. if you look hard enough, you might even find a few Rubik's Cubes in our house. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So a little 80s nostalgia going on over there. So what do they call this music of the 80s? Do they call it like vintage or classic? Is there a, a name for it? Well, I wasn't quite sure, but then I decided to ask them today. Okay. <laughs> what they say? They looked at me like I had three eyes and said, 80s music, mom. <laughs> Okay. All right, fine. I know, I know. Well, you know what? I remember looking back at the 50s and 60s, though, in sort of the same way that I can see my kids embracing the 80s. There Mm. is a nostalgia or a fondness for those days gone by. Yeah, like the movie Grease, Walker, my absolute fave movie of all time. It was very 50s-esque. For sure. The movie Grease certainly increased the popularity of the 1950s for those of us growing up in the 70s, didn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, who didn't love Sandy? Well, actually, I was more of a Rizzo fan. Oh, Rizzo. Oh, I loved Rizzo. (laughs) She was a bad, bad girl, but she really was good at heart. So did you want to be good Sandy or bad Sandy Walker? Oh, Harris, tough choice. I love those black pants she wore Mm -hmm. in the final scene. I have to say, as a little girl, when she came out, I thought, wow. Oh, yeah. That was quite a transformation. I went those stilettos. (laughs) I know. I know, but I I did like Good Sandy as well. I loved those saddle shoes when I was young, and I had a pair myself. Oh, okay. Well, I did not. (laughs) Very interesting. Yeah, I did. They weren't vintage, though. They were new that looked old. What about you? Were you into retro clothes or music? Well, I did go through a bit of a hippie phase, I suppose. I've always been a huge fan of 60s and 70s rock and a bit fascinated with the culture of that time, or should I say counterculture? Uh, I was going to say, what does that entail? With the 60s. I won't won't go there. We're not exploring that today, Walker. (laughs) What about retro toys, Harris? I can remember we walked the dog, rocked the baby, and attempted around the world more than a few times. And for those of you who don't know, that is yo-yo lingo. That is (laughs) yo-yo lingo. And the yo-yo was my nemesis. Oh, is it? Yes. I hated that thing. It just would not cooperate (laughs) 
for me at all. I was more of a plain old skipping rope fan. So like double dutch and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I absolutely love double dutch. Mm-hmm. It was my favorite. Mm-hmm. And don't forget silly putty. Remember, you could press it on cartoons and it would like pick up the relief of the cartoon. Did you ever do that? Oh, yeah. Comics in the newspaper. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Slinkies, Magic 8 Balls, they totally foretold our future. Absolutely. And hula hoops. Yeah, all of these toys are still popular today. Now, did you know that the scooter was a toy that was popular with kids in the Depression? No, I did not. Yeah, and it became a hot ticket again in the 2000s and still is, but they weren't really around in the 80s. At least none of my friends seemed to have them. No, no. But the skateboard, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. And I now have a skater child, so it's everywhere in my life again. I have three but, in my garage. Oh, do nobody you? Really play, nobody really uses them. Oh, One no. of them actually is my brother's from 1980. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's hilarious. And it was a fortune in the 1980 because he was really into it. Yeah. So he had to buy the board separately and then buy the wheels separately mm-hmm. and sort of customize it. Mm-hmm. Anyway. The deck. Yes, yes. The deck. Oh, yeah. I know. My daughter's all into that, too. We actually had to go skateboard shopping in California when we were there because it was Surf City. And Surf City's not all about surfing. It's also about skateboarding. Well, there you go. I did not know that. There you go. So, and what about roller skates? Right. Did you roller skate, Walker? I remember going to the roller rink as a kid. That's made a comeback, too. In fact, there's a new roller rink called Roller Pony just opened up not too far away and I am going to get my skates on and do a little hokey pokey in the middle. <laughs> I'd love to see that, Harris. Oh, just celebration. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> celebration. I loved roller skating, but listen to this. I swear the week after I got my roller skates, roller skating went out of fashion. It's like somebody flipped a switch Aww. and it was uncool. That is so <laughs> terrible. Would you remember what color your roller skates were? Oh, for sure. They were white with red wheels and blue pom-poms and I had to sell them because nobody was roller skating anymore they were in pristine condition Harris I think I wore them twice too bad you didn't hang on to them we could have been like a total pair Harrison Walker at the roller rink I know right yeah well there are other comebacks as well like the Polaroid camera for kids and of course vinyl records Mm -hmm. and I don't think vinyl is going away again anytime soon I wish I still had all of my records yeah, I know. In 2022, people spent 1.2 billion US on vinyl, wow. which, get this, was a 20% jump over 2021. Records surpassed CDs for the first time since 1988. Wow, that's crazy. Do you think it was the pandemic that led to all that interest? Like, what happened there? I'm not quite sure. Do I'm you not, think CDs uh, are coming back? Oh, gosh. I don't know. <laughs> I still have them. I still have those. Now I don't want to get I rid of them. I still have cassette tapes. I got rid of my all my mixtapes. Now if I use them, they probably sound like... Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. You know, and they get all tangled up exactly. and you have to do the pencil trick. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think I know anybody who uses CDs anymore. I know for a long time people thought that records were a music format of the past and I just said I sold mine off ages ago. I didn't have a record player though that worked. So that made the decision pretty straightforward. Right. We still have a lot of vinyl. Now, when I was doing some research for this episode, I noticed one record collector noted that vinyl records were never obsolete. He stated that even at its lowest point in 1991, worldwide, there was around 3 million LPs being sold. That's crazy. 3 million LPs? Who are those people? (laughs) Yeah, real audiophiles, I guess. 
Yeah, it wasn't until my son got into it that we started frequently record stores again. And I have to give a little shout out here to Sonic Boom, which is a fabulous record store in downtown Toronto. Mm. I love going there. My kids actually let me tag along because I love the vibe. Oh, that's nice of them. I have the credit card. Yes, of course. (laughs) Yep. Important. I used to work at a record store in the late 80s, so it brings back a lot of memories. Oh, that's so fun. So tell me, Walker, what are some of the benefits of vinyl other than that warmer sound everybody talks about? Right. Well, certainly the warm sound does come up a lot, but according to August Pritchett, who wrote an article entitled Why are old things increasingly popular with young people? One of the pluses of vinyl records is that they have a wider range of sound frequencies than digital. Downloaded songs are compressed so that the files are smaller, but that takes away some of the frequencies. Oh, okay, right. I I think I heard that. Also, you can hold on to an album in your hands. They're much more fun for gifting and sharing as well. Absolutely. (laughs) I used to love reading all the song lyrics. I love album art, and it's true, tangible just means something to me like ebooks no thanks yeah I'm not a fan either now I can tell you one thing for sure Harris I don't know if you've purchased vinyl lately but it is not cheap yeah I haven't is it crazy expensive oh my gosh I was motivated to find out why when my son had a few albums on his Christmas wish list yikes According to Amazon Audio vinyl has increased in price primarily due to the high production costs as there are now fewer record pressing plants and a higher demand. Mm. Also, artists and record labels figured out that they can capitalize on the popularity. Surprise, surprise. Of course. I wonder if this is going to level off, though, at some point. Is it sustainable or will vinyl lose its gloss? Mm, Time will tell. Mm -hmm. Listening to vinyl is not the only pastime, though, which has increased in popularity. Again, knitting, sewing, and even calligraphy have experienced a resurgence in the past 10 to 15 years haven't they oh they have Mm -hmm. I love doing calligraphy as a kid but it's kind of weird that it's popular again so many kids these days don't even know how to write cursive I know, right? Good point. Yeah. 20 years ago, it was popular for wedding invitations. I personally know this because I spent a fortune having mine done. Oh, really? They were all handwritten? Yes. That's wild. And beautiful. And when they messed one up, then the invite cost a lot to have an extra one rewritten again. So I was crossing my fingers every time that you wouldn't make a mistake. Oh my gosh, that's intense. And how many invitations were there? Uh, Only about 112. Well, I printed out my whatever, 16 off the <laughs> off the printer. I look back and I wish I had printed mine off the printer. It's a little perk of a small right? wedding. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm sure they were gorgeous, though. I remember buying my daughter a calligraphy kit for Christmas when she was 10. She was fascinated with the idea of it. Mm-hmm. Molly Superthorpe of Pluribel Calligraphy and Design Studio says, For many people, machine-made uniformity is now less desirable than the tiny human imperfections and effort recognizable only in hand craftsmanship. Hmm. The resurgence in calligraphy is specifically a response to the uniformity of digital typography. I can totally see that, but I don't really understand this newfound interest in calligraphy as much as I understand the intense interest in sewing and knitting that I've seen. It seems a bit more practical, the whole knitting and sewing thing, unless you're regularly sending out wedding invites. Uh, hopefully that won't be necessary. <laughs> yeah, hopefully <laughs> not. Be bad. Yeah. <laughs> I can remember my mom sewing me dresses when I was little, but when I was a teen, I wouldn't be caught 
instead wearing something handmade. I know. There was stigma around it. Homemade clothing certainly did not have the same associated cool factor when we were growing up Mm -hmm. as it does now. Now there's sewing studios everywhere where you can create your own designs or learn how to hone your sewing skills. And the knitting circles, they are intense. And there are (laughs) shops too which offer knitting lessons. Well, that sounds like something that I could get into. Every time my grandmother came to visit, she would teach me the basics of knitting. And then when she would leave, I'd forget again. And it was an endless cycle, which resulted in, guess what? Zero results. Uh, Well, I had results. I knit a scarf once, if you could call it that. It was the saddest, saddest looking thing. And I think I kept it just to remind myself not to engage in anything crafty. (laughs) Craftiness is not my cup of tea. It was so, so sad. But I think you should try it again, Walker. I think a knitting group would love to have you. Oh, I'm not so sure about that, Harris. I can't think my ability to pick up knitting is any better now than it was when I was a child. But I may risk the embarrassment and give it a go regardless. Yeah, join the crafting revolution, Walker. (laughs) Do it for the both of us. Do it for me. Okay. (laughs) So you've heard the term upcycling, right? Yes. It's a term which we hear quite a bit these days, and it refers to taking something old and modifying it to give it a second life as a new product. It's very popular these days, partially because there's a zero-waste, eco-conscious element to upcycling, particularly clothes. It's not only good for the environment, but it's a really great creative outlet for many of those crafties out there. Everyone from tweens to older folk are getting involved. Mm -hmm. Some are doing it for fun. Others have even turned it into a business. Oh, wow. Yeah. Trista Smith in Vancouver Island, Canada, left her job as a nurse to become a designer and dressmaker. She creates sustainable fashion from reclaimed and vintage materials. And she particularly loves vintage and antique lace, Hmm. as well as vintage tablecloths to create her boho inspired dresses oh wow that kind of reminds me of sound of music where julie andrews takes down the curtains and like fashions this entire line of stylish clothing for the children i know right in a day yeah like how on earth did she do that well i'm gonna have to check that woman out i love me some boho i have to say i'm not a big fan of crochet tablecloths but Mm -hmm. once she turns them into dresses yeah they are exceptional. They're so beautiful. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't wait to check her out. So you are going to put her contact yes. info in the show notes. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Some people have combined their great appreciation for older fashion with their love of tailoring and taken it to a whole new level. Mm. For them, the fashion from a bygone era is an integral part of their everyday life. Okay. Like Zach Pinsent is a historical consultant and tailor who has been featured on the BBC Vogue L to just name a few. Zach is the owner of Pinsent Tailoring located in England, which is known for creating historically accurate bespoke period clothing for both men and women. His Instagram account is absolutely wonderful as Zach himself sports many different period costumes and outfits. Yeah, I've checked him out. It's pretty amazing. And it's quite he's quite entertaining too. Yes, he walks the walk and talks the talk. He does. <laughs> he walks the walk and talks the talk. Yes. And there are so many people like Zach who are sharing their love of an era gone by with others. I've come across many people over the years whose love of vintage clothing is more than a hobby. It's a lifestyle. But for some people, their love of vintage goes far beyond clothing and home goods. It does. So check this out. In 2020, The Guardian interviewed individuals who are drawn by a retro aesthetic and a sense of nostalgia. One such fellow, Michael Koropitz, a 24-year-old from Manchester, had an appreciation for all things Victorian. He lives 
like a gentleman, top hat and all, from the 1890s. He isn't a fan of TV or of any music after 1900 and instead prefers to spend his time hosting Saturday night tea parties. Okay, well, that's a little different. Mm, The top hat certainly would tip you off that he's a bit of a different guy. (laughs) It does sound kind of fun, though, doesn't it? He's quite nostalgic for a time that he never even knew firsthand. But did you know that there are actually two types of nostalgia? I didn't. Do tell. According to Barbara B. Stern, who studies cultural nostalgia, there is a historical nostalgia and a personal nostalgia. Mm. The first involves wanting to retreat from contemporary life into the past because it's viewed as superior to our present day. And personal nostalgia, however, involves a recollection, which is largely fictionalized of our childhood home as a place of warmth, security, and love. Ah, so that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. our friend Michael there has historical nostalgia. You got it, Walker. Tim Wildschut from the University of Southampton stated that nostalgia gives meaning and connectedness and makes sense of our own identity through time as well as offering us escape from the troubles of the present. He further stated that our research shows that loneliness and social isolation trigger nostalgia. Nostalgia, in turn, increases perceived social connectedness and support. So viewed in this way, nostalgia offsets the negative effects of loneliness. Well, that's a little different side benefit of nostalgia I really wasn't aware of. I know. And furthermore, people who take part in these nostalgic lifestyles often say it's the community of people who share their interest that they really enjoy. So it really does combat loneliness. But whether you fully embrace another era or just dabble as a hobby, it's truly a fondness and appreciation of another time. We do seem to love our time travel, don't we, Walker? Oh, we certainly do. If you could time travel, Harris, where would you go? Back or would you go into the future? Okay, definitely not the future. I don't want to know the future. (laughs) Let's leave it as a mystery. I would definitely go back in time. It would be really hard to choose one time. If I didn't have to stay long, I'd probably love to be a fly on the wall in like ancient Egypt. Um, But if I had to linger and live there, maybe I would go back to the roaring 20s before the stock market crash, of course, right? What about you? I would definitely go back for sure. I'm not sure what time period though. I would be careful though. I think about this a lot actually with my luck. (laughs) I'd be mistaken for someone who'd be imprisoned or beheaded. So, you know, if I was going to go back, I'd really have to choose an easy life not want to struggle I, I don't want to be building any pyramids you know <laughs> like honestly I don't be working in any field <laughs> I have very nice outfits and fancy hair so you want to be very selective oh, about what kind of person you're going to be so. okay keep that in mind when yeah. time travel becomes a thing and I'd want to guarantee as well that getting back to this timeline would happen oh yeah get the getting back bit is a big issue (laughs) i would definitely consider fashion as one draw to a particular time travel destination Mm -hmm. though there is a great deal of interest in vintage fashion and thrifting has had a great reawakening Mm -hmm. as we touched on earlier there's an ecological benefit to this approach to buying clothing whether you're upcycling old clothing that you currently own or you're purchasing thrifted clothing 
So tell me, what is this ecological benefit of thrifting? Well, by reusing or purchasing previously owned clothing, we keep clothes from heading into the landfill and we also keep new products from being made. For instance, when you buy a new pair of jeans, there is a cost. And I'm not just talking about the jeans themselves, Harris. Mm. The process uses a lot of water and energy and creates pollution through chemical use. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, you may not know, Harris, that 70% of Asia's rivers and lakes are contaminated by wastewater produced as a result of textile production, as reported in an article in EcoWatch. That's a horrendous statistic. I know. I was really, really surprised. Yeah. It's also the focus of the documentary River Blue. Have you heard of it? No. Yeah. Textile production communities have contaminated rivers, which they depend upon for drinking and bathing, and people inside the factories and living in the community are reputed to having a higher number of cases of gastric and skin cancers. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Gene production is said to be especially toxic as a distressed look that we all love mm-hmm. requires several chemical intensive washes. Water testing done in areas of gene manufacturing has identified several chemicals, which, of course, run off into the nearby rivers and will eventually make it to our oceans. So we really can have an impact with our buying power. No fast fashion people and watch how many pairs of jeans you're buying. Right. But thrifting isn't without its problems. Oh, really? Yeah, I was surprised by this. As thrifting has gotten increasingly popular, the cost of used clothing has also increased. Oh, supply and demand like we discussed with the vinyl industry. Right, it makes sense, exactly. Except increased prices of used clothing affects those in lower economic brackets who depend on the lower price options to clothe their families. So there is the risk of those who are most in need of these services and being able to thrift shop Mm -hmm. being priced out. Yes. If not priced out, certainly their dollar won't go as far, won't yeah, stretch as that far. that is not good. Yeah, exactly. I know. And I wasn't aware of this. We are big thrifters in our house. I love the thrill of the hunt. Clearly mm-hmm. the archaeologist in me there, Harris. Mm-hmm. But my daughter loves the idea of reusing and repurposing. And together, you know, we make a pretty good thrifting team. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so do you ever go to garage sales for your finds? I look everywhere, Harris. Garage okay. sales, eBay, other online auctions and marketplace. I try to shop local, though, so I can avoid shipping. Yeah, well, that also has an environmental impact, right? Mm-hmm. So have you ever made any big finds? Uh, no. No Rembrandts yet, but okay. yes, I've gotten some pretty good deals on items of value. For instance, um, two beautiful Satsuma vases, which had been converted into lamps, some early 19th century chairs, some 19th century sterling silver telescopic candlesticks, and even an 18th century sterling silver sugar tongs. Wow. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. Some of the most important finds, though, I have to say are not necessarily of extreme value, but were unique pieces, which were perfect finds for friends, mm-hmm. which I knew they would absolutely love. They were items which couldn't be readily found in stores. Well, you actually found a couple of amazing items for me and my dad. Oh, yes. Right. A really beautiful limited edition Wedgwood plate that yeah. featured the University of Toronto, of which my dad, he worked there. It's um, striking. It's striking and he treasures it. And you got me, well, you've got me some amazing gifts. One of the latest, most recent was the Collie. The porcelain oh, collie. Yeah. Your baby. A treasure, a treasure. So those are the best kind of finds. So have you ever found any old typewriters, Walker? I think I know where you're going with this, Harris. Oh, yeah? I, I actually saw one at auction last night, but I have zero room 
or interest in collecting typewriters. Not yet anyways. Well, then you probably know that they're really quite collectible these days. Yes. Tom Hanks might have had something to do with it because he's been quite vocal about his love for typewriters and his ever-expanding collection. I think you might be right about that. Hanks owns roughly 250 typewriters, and I read that he also has been known to type letters to fans on his typewriters. Well, that's pretty cool, though I have to say I much prefer my (laughs) laptop having had experience with typewriters in my youth. Do you remember having to backspace over all your errors and then having to roll the paper in every time you finished a page and it would end up in a big jam? And all the gloppy liquid paper. Oh, it was such a nightmare. What a pain. <laughs> I'm with you on that. But I did recently buy my husband Hanks's book on 17 short stories on typewriters called Uncommon Type Some Stories. Hmm. Each features a different antique manual typewriter. Have you read it? I would have to say that I haven't even ever heard of it. Ah, well, I will certainly pass it on to you when I'm done reading it. Okay, I'll give it a try. But I wonder why he has this obsession with typewriters. Well, Hanks is known for saying that collecting typewriters is a lot cheaper than collecting cars or pianos. Right. Well, I'm sure that Jay Leno, who's known for being an avid car collector, would probably agree with him. (laughs) Hanks also said that guitars are nice to collect. You can hang them on the wall. But if you don't play the guitar... What's the effing point? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you played the electric guitar, though, Harris. I did. Any interest in collecting guitars? None whatsoever. Well, Hanks is not the only person with a love of typewriters, either. There's even a documentary called California Typewriter, featuring those who collect them. It documents the struggles of California Typewriter, which is one of the last standing typewriter repair shops in America. That sounds kind of interesting. And Hanks is just one of a few typewriter-loving celebrities who are featured. Of course. Well, speaking of typewriter-loving people, have you ever heard of James Cook, who's a typewriter artist from Braintree, Essex in England? I have. I thought you might have. (laughs) I love his work, and I bet you do too. It is so cool. Yeah, I do. For our listeners who have not yet had the pleasure of seeing his fabulous artwork, I would encourage you to seek him out. He creates intricate works of art with manual typewriters. I would never in my wildest dreams have thought that this could be done. Mm-hmm. They are so detailed. Mm-hmm. Cook creates landscapes, still life, architecture, and also living beings, both human and animals, on paper with this typewriter. It's it's absolutely insane what he can do I saw a video of him creating he literally was sitting in a theater with a typewriter and a piece of paper and started creating the image of the room he was sitting in it was mesmerizing to watch yeah it is quite remarkable he said his interest in creating art with the typewriter started back in 2014 when he came across a news story of a man called Paul Smith who unfortunately suffered from severe cerebral palsy. Hmm. Due to his condition, he was unable to hold a pencil or paintbrush, but honed his skills using the mechanical precision of a typewriter to produce a portfolio of incredible work spanning at least 60 years. Hmm. Since then, Cook has created over 300 typewritten drawings. I wonder how long it takes him to create one of these pieces. Well, in an interview for Board Panda, Cook says that it really depends on the size, scale, and the complexity of the image he's trying to create. Right. They range from 9 to 30 hours. 
Now, here's a little extra something, something, Harris. In most of his drawings, there are secret messages hidden Ooh. in the images that mean, or meaningful words which are connected with a specific piece. Oh, my gosh. I love that. I know. It's like a little Nancy Drew <laughs> treasure hunt with every picture. That's even more reason to love his work. I know. Cook says that each drawing is assembled from a variety of characters, letters, and punctuation marks using the 44 keys. Of a typical typewriter, information is overlaid and the keys are tapped at various pressures to achieve tonal shading. Hmm. And because he's limited by the size of the paper that can fit into a typewriter, he needs to hot press sections of paper together to produce larger pieces. Oof. And in case you were wondering about how many typewriters he owns, the most recent number I could find was almost 60. Wow, 60. I think I would need to buy a new house to accommodate all those typewriters. So true. But it's pretty neat to see artists create something new out of something old, isn't it? Mm -hmm. For instance, Nick Gentry from London, England, uses floppy disks in his art. Remember those? I do, but I'm very happy to forget about them. <laughs> Gentry doesn't use them as we once did. They serve as his canvas for painting futuristic portraits. So is his work limited to using floppy disks? No. He also uses VHS tapes, x-rays, and the old-timey film rolls. That's pretty cool. Do you remember those little... Kodak shacks where you used to have to drop off your film and then wait for it to get developed? I do. I think we are dating ourselves so, Harris. Yeah, we definitely are. <laughs> but I'm trying to find my comfort in the nostalgia there, Walker. It's so much easier now to manage your photographs, but I think there was something fun about discovering how your photos turned out after whatever the event was, there were always some surprises in them when you picked up your film. Too true. There's something to taking it slow, isn't there? Yeah. Just like floppy disks aren't so useful anymore, Pakistani artist Khalil Chishchi creates life-size sculptures out of recycled plastic bags. They're quite ominous looking, actually. Oh. According to an article in Artspur magazine, the plastic bag is a metaphor for recycling our identity and a mm. way to face the obstacles in our lives. Well then. Mm -hmm. You probably wouldn't be surprised that old clothing, plastic waste, and obsolete technology seems to come often as the materials used for many artists. Probably because there's so much of it readily available in our planet, unfortunately. So true. It's an affordable way to create art if you use what's just laying around there, Harris. Mm -hmm. I've seen the term artifice used to describe artists who use recycled materials to produce their works of art. Well, that's pretty awesome and quite fitting. These artists and artivism itself is discussed at length by Maxime Duker in her article for Cause Artists. She knows that art doesn't overwhelm the public as generally scientific reports do. Instead, it offers a solution and a profound sense of optimism. Hmm. And that artivism creates empathy and compassion, making those watching relate to the cause. Well, that's a really good point. It is a different and perhaps an even more impactful approach to communicating a message. It is. A San Francisco artist named Jason Mercier actually created personalized pieces from waste. Some of his pieces are created out of the recycled materials of the individual who is presented in the portrait. Huh. I love turning waste into something that can be appreciated in a new form instead of going to a landfill at the end of its days. Have you ever heard of TC Trash Art? No, but it does sound a little promising. Well, two Florida artists, Rebecca Fatzinger and Christina Maldonado, are the great minds behind TC Trash Art. These two were frustrated with the garbage that they were finding each day on the beaches of Hutchinson Island in Stewart, Florida, and decided that they would reinvent this garbage into daily creations, which are typically whimsical figures in the sand for the day. 
Well, as Ray Bradbury once said, ours is a culture and a time immensely rich in trash as it is in treasures. It's a movement, isn't it? To use what we have, what our society has already produced, and create something new, beautiful, and meaningful. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker. We would love to hear from you.